And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf, Jonathan Stran, and special guest Genevieve Valentine on the Coot Street Podcast. That wasn't very good. Hi, Gary. Hi. Hi. Hello, Genevieve. Sorry about that long last syllable there. Wasn't my fault. It's not a podcast unless the last syllable is really long. Oh, Okay. Fair enough. Well, he won't let me put theme music in. I even got a, got a little bit of Led Zeppelin and the whole thing, so there's no theme music. Oh, yeah. so. oh no, no. He made a good call. He made a good call. <laughs> I, I did consider getting a friend of mine to get one of those little sort of like 1980s little Casio, you know, sort of keyboards. And then oh, that actually, would be a, actually play Ramble On by Led Zeppelin on that and then sample that. No, we're right back to Nope. Nope. We, we, went, we circled back. We circled back to Bad Idea. Because that's what we do here. We just sort of ramble and ramble and ramble and ramble. But anyway, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here on the podcast. We've been going back and forth for a few weeks to, to get it all lined up. So, no, thank you for having me. I am very happy to be here. And of course, well, we wanted to. Partly, I'm, I'm being selfish because I mean, the, the last couple of times we, we saw each other at, at ICFA, where uh, where you won the Crawford Award, and congratulations again for that. And we talked for like what ten <laughs> minutes at the banquet. Uh, and I wanted you on the podcast then, and then we talked a bit at ReaderCon, and it seemed like we never had an extended conversation, so we're just being selfish here. <laughs> I'm okay with that. In this instance, I'm okay with that. Very nice of you. Oh. Now, you've been having a busy time, very busy time of late, haven't you? Because you've got stories I, popping up all over uh, the place and all kinds of things. Um, yes, it has been a busy last few weeks, I would say, in all respects. <laughs> Well, well, okay. Sh sh shall we? I wasn't going to start here, but I guess sh sh shall we sort of deal with the first issue off the rank and then move on to other things? Does that sound like a reasonable way to go? I think so. Okay. Probably as everybody listens listening to the podcast knows, there was an issue with you know ReaderCon, which you both attended, which I've never attended, and which I hear is a good convention and I should probably go to, where. You were harassed by another attendee at the convention, and that you yes. and you then quite reasonably looked to engage with the convention's harassment policy and have them you know, have them consider events that they didn't follow their own policy. That led to some controversy, I think it'd be fair to say. And then they went back, they addressed it, issued an apology, and commenced following their policy. Is that a reasonable summary? Uh, more or less. I would like to make the distinction that the board handed down the initial decision, um, and the board was only five people. Uh, the CONCOM stepped in almost immediately and was in contact with me, letting me know that they were going to uh, do the vote over again and then talk about what they could do to make this right and to look at harassment in terms of the convention as a whole going forward, which I think is fantastic. I think the outcome has been extremely positive. What, what do you think, as someone who's clearly been a victim of harassment at conventions, is the most important thing to come out of it? Because obviously the thing that's interesting, well, no, I think it's important about this isn't ReaderCon itself particularly. It is the broader issue of, of harassment at conventions, this idea that conventions are safe spaces, how we should behave at conventions, how we shouldn't, how we should behave in society at large. Um, it, has, it has really become part of, I think, the cultural conversation con-wide. We've seen it in the skeptic community. We saw it recently at Comic-Con. Uh, it's come up in the gamer community quite recently. Um, and I think the answer is twofold. I think the two most important things that are necessary in order to combat harassment are, number one, 
um, an administration that understands what harassment is and how to deal with it, um, which, again, is something that ReaderCon has addressed very well. They have a safety committee that they're setting up, and they are being trained by the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center so that they can recognize when it happens and know how to deal with it, both with the harasser and the target of harassment. Um, and the second thing, and the thing that I experienced that, that I guess surprised me, and that's a sad thing to say because it shouldn't have, because the community that I know is fantastic, but the reaction was overwhelmingly positive from other people. Mm -hmm. um, I would say things on the internet have a tendency to sort of spiral out of control quickly because it is the internet. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I think the response even when it was angry, was very focused, and it was focused on the correct results and not so much bashing anyone or being angry for the sake of being angry. It was it was incredibly clear, incredibly focused. There was a lot of community support. Um, and I think that that is something that we are also beginning to see throughout con culture, where someone says, I was harassed, and other people in the community immediately stand up and say, that's not right, what can we do? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that in the in the larger context, things are really beginning to change in terms of there's a whole new generation of fans that are coming out, and the environment that they that they demand is one where the community is looking out for its own, and I yeah. think that that's fantastic. I think that's really the outcome of the discussion that uh, surprised me is is the extent to which other conventions are looking at this now. And the whole community is, is 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 looking at the issue. Not as it's not as though people were not aware of the issue, but I've always had a sense that people like to believe that our community isn't like, um, well, a, a, a certain business convention I went to years ago, which would be appalling by any anybody's standards today. Uh, but you find out that these things do go on, and you find out that uh, that most of them go unreported. So that so that ReaderCon's response to this after the fact, uh, after an unfortunate incident is a response that I think a lot of other cons are now taking on uh, preemptively uh, in trying to set up these. Absolutely. Which, which, um, which means it might be an a healthy Australian friend of mine, uh, An Australian friend of mine, Stephanie Lai, who is on the committee for Continuum next year down near you, yep. uh, Jonathan, yep. actually contacted me to say that she is using ReaderCon's statement as... Uh, something to bring to the committee so that they can also hammer out a more thorough discussion of a code of conduct for Continuum itself. Um, so I definitely think that this is something that the community is beginning to take seriously. And I think it's, I mean, I, I, I would like to say that it will never be necessary, but it obviously will. But I think that having something in place and having the reporting of it become more acceptable more commonplace, something that there are procedures in place to deal with that protect everybody as much as possible. I mean, that's what you want. That's great. Oh, oh absolutely. I, th I think it's an, an essential thing. I mean, I, I would not be unhappy to see a default pro forma policy published somewhere that conventions, who pr probably aren't necessarily by default skilled in that sort of an area, that they can look at and refer to and bring in house because certainly from a personal perspective, you know, it's been the last three or four years that it has become as obvious as it has that this has been as pervasive a problem as it is for a very, very long time. Um, and it's become more and more essential for, in fact, it's important that cons react to it, but it's, it's even more important that con culture, con goers react to it. 
and respond to it and embrace this as an issue that they have to understand and be be part of so that when these things happen at conventions or in fact hopefully they don't happen at conventions but when they do there are people around to be supportive to help to help prevent these things happening or escalating um rather than taking on the approach of well we're just the unsocialized minority or whatever and you know we come along and aren't we all just going to be friends and it'll all be fine or that was just my friend don't worry about it that kind of thing which has been built into so much over the past 75 years of conventions or whatever it is um, it has been it's sort of the fetishization of of the geek as yeah. the untouchable mm-hmm. no the the untouchable innocent who has never before seen other people and how can we expect them to know how to act and it's like no you're an adult you've got it well every now yeah. and again, yeah, every now and again and this sort of speaks more to you know, sort of being socialized than anything else rather than this particular issue but i know that when i was at reno for worldcon last year i was in the dealer's room uh, just as it opened and it was about the third day of the convention and every morning there would be a announcement over the over the pa as it opened and part of the announcement was, and now it's the third day of the convention, and for those of you who don't realize it, it's time to bathe. And I kind of thought it just said everything that needed to be said about what's wrong about the fetishization of the geek in, in our convention, in our culture. One thing about this discussion, though, which well, was a couple of things which concerned me slightly, right? One of them is that we have to make conventions as safe a space as we possibly can, but I think we also have to be alert to the fact that conventions are never going to be more safe than the ambient society that they're in. So we need the support mechanisms for when conventions aren't safe. You know. I agree. Uh, because I do hear, I see people. Well, conventions should be a safe space. Conventions are never going to be a safe space. In my, you know, is, is my, my belief. But you can make them a safer space and you can make them a supportive space. You, you can endorse positive behavior. You can support convention committees when they do the right thing. And you can make it clear to people who are harassers that their behavior is thoroughly unacceptable and that they will be literally cast out if that's what's going to happen or if necessary be placed in the hands of the law or whatever I actually think that's a really good definition of a safe space, though. I think a safe space is not, you know, a magical glen where no one is ever ever out of line, ever. It's when people are inevitably out of line, do you have support from the community? Do you have support from people in authority? And are there going to be consequences for the people that are doing the harassing? Yes. Um, so I, I I definitely hope that this conversation becomes the part, becomes part of something bigger. I think one of the ironies of this, and I didn't, I mean, I did not read all the thousands of posts and live journals and things about it, but part of the irony strikes me is that the whole idea of conventions, going back to the beginning of, of science fiction conventions and comic conventions, is that they were more or less invented as a safe space for, as you say, people who self-identified geeks, who couldn't, who couldn't talk about their passions with their friends and family. They wanted some place where they wouldn't be made fun of for behaving oddly. Um, and you would think a, a group like that would be hypersensitive to the notion of, of, of safety, uh, at least intellectual and, uh, and sort of um, cultural safety. I think it's safety. nice to think that, but I have yet to meet a subculture that cannot start a feud even if there's only <laughs> one person in the room. Well, that's true too. I'd also say that what I think what actually happened wasn't that a whole group of people found a safe space to be a geek in. 
what they oh, yeah. did was they found a space, uh, or, or a group of them, they found a space where they didn't have to apologize for whatever their behaviors were, whether they were acceptable or unacceptable. Because they were under this rubric of, well, we're all geeks together and we're all the unsocialized and everything else. And one thing that, I mean, even back when I first encountered fandom many years ago, used to bother me about that idea, is that it's kind of permission never to try. You know, you don't have to learn about being socialized. You don't have to learn how to behave reasonably because you're in this area and we accept everything. And the thing is, what's great about this particular turn of events over the both with ReaderCon and other events that have lit, uh, led up to it is that it's saying well hang on a minute you still have to behave decently you know yes you can be into Babylon 5 and yes you can want to dress up as a turnip if that's what you really want to do and no one's mm. going to really make fun of you too much but you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this and you will never be allowed to do this because that is wrong and because that, amongst many other things it is destroying somebody else's chance to be the geek they want to be and to be in a space right. where they could. I think. Ha! Huh. Okay. Uh, that kind of kills that, so. <laughs> <laughs> this is a parenthetical thing. It's a completely yeah. separate issue. Um and I don't want to I don't want to dwell on it either. But uh, back way back in your original uh, post, Genevieve, you, you talked about another thing which happened at the convention, which which at, at at ReaderCon, which also happens a lot, bothers me a lot because I happened to be in the audience when you were on the Frankenstein panel, mm. and I, uh, there no. were my well, this this was a panel of I think four guys and and Genevieve on on a book written by a woman. Uh, and and Genevieve was in the middle of making a really good point about the novel, partly about not being a jerk, and so we were really on, we were kind of grooving, and then somebody stepped on what you were saying, and so could you finish that thought about Frankenstein not <laughs> jerk? <laughs> yes, thank goodness I brought all my notes. <laughs> uh, um, well, there's etiquette, I, I guess. There's an etiquette on, in, in, in being on a panel as well as being in a social space. And there's a certain amount of enthusiasm and all that in terms of wanting to jump in and wanting to have a great conversation, especially when something comes up and someone, you know, immediately like wants to agree and wants to elaborate, and that's perfectly fine. Um, the problem is, of course, that once again, within the larger society, there's sort of the systemic idea that when a dude is talking, a dude is talking, and when a lady is talking, a dude can still talk. Um, and that's not across the board, um, but it, it is something that happens often enough that I think that it has scared some women with a lot to say off of doing panels and, and that sort of thing, because they think mm. if no one is going to look out for what I have to say, you know, I'll be shouting into an echo box while everyone else has a conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Which is again just just one of the things that society has to fix as a whole. But uh, in terms of con culture, if we can work on fixing it in the microcosm, that would also be very nice. I mean, I, I would say there's there's two different kinds of behavior you need to distinguish between, though they both happen. And and there's the one that you're talking about, which is reprehensible, which is this uh, in in effect, well, the the, the, the in, ingrained sexism that sort of says, yeah, if a dude's talking, a dude's talking, and that's the most important thing. And then there's the other one, which is the genuinely clueless kind of thing that goes, I'm talking, and I cannot imagine that anybody could be more interesting than me. 
And so I, I'm, I'm, there's no like self-check mechanism that goes, this is a 45-minute panel. I've been talking for 25 minutes. It might be time to shut up. Well, it was a panel full of dudes who were also <laughs> academics, all of whom I believe have professorial teaching positions. So good luck on that. Well, yeah. well let, let me throw I mean, across. What, what do you think of the whole panel parody thing? The Paul Cornell idea. Yeah. I am actually going to share someone else's anecdote, which is sort of cheating, but I also think it illustrates it well. Um, a friend of mine, Veronica Shanus, who is a professor uh, in her own right yep. and very outspoken about the topics that she loves, signed up for several topics at ReaderCon and got assigned to, I believe, four. And for two of them, she was the only woman on the panel. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wrote Rose and pointed this out, and Rose was able to correct panel parody uh, by adding another woman to one of the panels, but for the other panel, she said, you're the only woman that expressed interest. It was a panel on how to teach science fiction and fantasy, mm-hmm. um, which either means that all of the all of the women who came to ReaderCon who were professors had, had absolutely no interest in talking about how they teach, which seems unlikely, or that, for whatever reason, women academics are not going to ReaderCon. Yeah. Uh, okay. And that might be... I, that might be because traditionally ReaderCon has sort of been something of an old boys club, and while it's bent has been academic, it's bent has also been very masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is ironic because we are talking about Frankenstein, which is an overt critique of masculinity from beginning to end. Um... So it was it was an hour of irony, I would say. Gary, would you agree? <laughs> uh, it, it was ironic. I mean, I will. Uh, there was one of the panelists who I thought was on your side. Um, it was another writer, and uh, but generally, it was it was not the first time I've seen that. It was uh, it was frustrating to me because um, we were cheering you on in the back. You're actually making sense here, and. Uh, here are a couple of people who are, who are doing their college lectures, which they've been giving on this, and they're goddamn going to get their college <laughs> lectures sometime right now because they spent 20 years preparing it. I almost—I <laughs> was going to say—I almost feel like what they should do is, if you want to be on a panel, you have to agree that they'll video the panel and you have to watch it afterwards. I would never be on a panel again. <laughs> but do that two or three times, and you'll change how you behave. They would. I they think. Would. Uh, I think this is a nightmare. Gary, you've disappeared down a corridor. Come back. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was being, I, I was I was getting excited and I put the microphone over while while, while I was drinking my wine. Okay, that's what I was doing. I was drinking wine. Fine. Thanks. You, Thanks. That's okay. No. Um, uh, there, there's an issue. I mean, it's 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 not entirely the gender thing. Um, interestingly enough, I had a friend years ago who was a linguist, a professional linguist who had gone into therapy. I mean, she got her doctorate in linguistics at the University of Chicago and was doing marriage counseling. And one of the techniques, which is now very, very common, but she was one of the pioneers, was to um, record, just have the married couple record, and then count the number of interruptions, who interrupted who. And the, needless to say, you, you, you wouldn't be surprised at the outcome that on, on average, 80% of the interruptions were by the husband. Mm. That was simply the way they were acculturated. And the husbands did not believe that. In other words, the uh, and she had data. She was actually doing this to study speech patterns. 
she had all kinds of data, but one of the things that happens when, when people like this are talking on a panel, and it can be somebody, it, it, it can be a gender thing. It can be a guy who just is used to being the authority figure. It can be somebody who's a professor who's used to being the authority figure. It can be somebody who's older who's used to being. But people who believe themselves to be authority figures don't see themselves as interrupting and stepping on people's lines as, as much as they really are. Yeah. I can believe that. <sighs> okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> see, as, as you will now be experiencing, Genevieve, not the most professional, smoothly sort of structured podcast. But we, we do what we can. No, I enjoy it. You attack a subject, and then we are finished. The subject is done. Very decisive. Well, I don't know. What else is there to say? You know, um, hopefully things will get... Well, not hopefully. The community should work towards making things better, but not just... I mean, yes, obviously about harassment, but about the, the inclusion of women generally, or in fact, of anybody generally into... The, the fabric of our community, be it on panels where they should be treated be, with respect, with be it in the corridors of a convention where they should be treated in a civilized manner, or whether it's on the pages of a magazine or anywhere else. And that's something which seems self-evident, and I don't know how much more there is to say beyond it in some ways, other than it's encouraging that that seems to be being picked up as the, the predominant discussion in our field today. I... And I think it's a discussion that needs to be had. And yes. I think that even though it's painful to have it and we haven't even begun to get through the pain that will happen before we're on the other side of it, I am guessing. Mm. Um, it is a conversation that the community needs to have in the same way that the community is beginning to have discussions about race in the same way that the steampunk community is beginning to have to actually tackle the fact that for a long time they have been play acting and championing an empire that did quite a bit of damage. Mm. Um, and if as a cult, you know, if as, as a subculture, they are going to move forward, it's something that they are going to have to deal with and look at and analyze. Um, and I think it's always painful, but I think it's always necessary. Mm. I would agree strongly. Well, do you think that steampunk has become kind of a full utopian uh, subset of, um, of, of science fiction? I mean, steampunk was, it seems to me a lot of the early steampunk was very critical of the Victorian era and, and dealt a lot with imperialism and that sort of thing. And and now it seems to be it's, it's almost a separate genre. And, I and think that right now steampunk is is two very different genres. Um, I think that that there is the above the clouds steampunk where everything is amazing airships forever. Um, <laughs> And of course, one understands the appeal because it's it's every wonderful Errol Flynn swashbuckler that there is, except now you're 5,000 feet in the air, and it's awesome. Mm, true. Um, and then there is uh, a movement that I think is is just starting, and it is much more critical of the Victorian society against which steampunk should be rebelling. Um, so in some ways, it's a throwback to that initial steampunk that was a straightforward critique of of Victorian society. Um, mm -hmm. And you're seeing a lot of steampunk that is not about British and Western cultures. You are seeing a lot of steampunk that is a direct critique of the upper class. Um, you're dealing with I, labor issues? Um, dealing with labor issues. Um, I wrote a short story about that 
myself because I saw one too many airship captains. And I was like, if you were the captain, who is making your ship go and what are their lives like? Right. And that um, was in, that was the one. That, OK, I'm, I'm going to really embarrass myself. A moment, but isn't that the one that Jonathan that you had in the year's best? Yes, I think uh, so. I certainly hope so. It was, yes, it was. It was yes. in the year's best. Yes, it okay, was. Good. Yes. It was in, in, it's one of those titles, and Genevieve, you do this, you're not the only one who does this. I love these titles that start off with the Zeppelin Conductor's Annual Song. And they're wonderfully complicated, but I can never remember them. But it's the <laughs> Zeppelin Conductor's Annual... Zeppelin Conductor's Society uh, Annual Gentleman's Ball. Well done. Wow. Okay. Spoken like uh, a yes, I have a tendency to do that. Never have a one-word title when a ten-word title will do, is my motto. <laughs> well, I must say, looking down your bibliography, there's only like uh, maybe four or five stories that you've had published that were one-word titles. Souvenir, Semiramis, Seeing. I that motto whenever possible. <laughs> Though I do think that Zeppelin Conductor Society Annual Gentleman's Ball would be your longest published short story title i agree uh it is certainly the one i have the most trouble typing out correctly the first time because of the odd possessive and the whole business i sort of i sort of painted myself into a corner with that one um but i do think that there is a second wave of steampunk that is taking a more critical look at what initially sounded like such a fantastic wonderful idea Well, um, well, certainly you see it in stuff like have you read uh lavi tidhar's story in the mammoth book of steampunk Yes. Which is the story where, if I recall it correctly off the top of my head, he uh, has someone trying to create a simulation of the late Karl Marx set mm-hmm. against a background of mecha- mechanized sweatshops, if yes. I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. I, I win. Um. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, and, and that is that. I mean, that is the other side of steampunk. I, I, I guess one of those, okay, one of the not particularly grown up and mature responses to some of this is, but isn't it still okay to have people swinging around from zeppelins? Or do we, or you know, like, or, or do we have? Does every story about swinging around from a zeppelin and being a a steamship captain uh, have to have broader kind of context to it? And it's an interesting question. Um, Right now, I feel like the community is so small that everyone's being forced to confront it at the same time, which Mm -hmm. in some ways is good. Have the awkward conversation, get done with it, then grow. Um, And there's not really a good answer for that. I mean, for every... For every book that is outlining the horrible drudgery of the Dickensian shop worker whose Mm -hmm. life is just nothing but ashes and sadness, um, there are really good stories that are worth telling that aren't necessarily about that. Yes. But I think that right now, the the flip side of having a community that is so small is that unless we all confront it right away, no one will ever confront it. It's not, it's not big enough yet to have the factions that are doing separate things, but aware of each other and acknowledging each other. Um, yeah. And I certainly don't think that steampunk has to be a veil of tears forever. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a veil of tears now, but I do think that there is sort of an imperative on the community as a whole to yep. sit down and think about what exactly you are championing when you do a certain thing. I think that's fair. Uh, there have been steampunk conventions on the West Coast that have had as their motto the Wild Wild East, where the whole idea is, you know, a celebration of Orientalism. And it's like, please... Please, oh, no. 
just Wikipedia something for like five minutes. Just <laughs> give it five minutes and then decide if that's really what you still want to do. I know kimonos are amazing, but yeah. let's all take a look at it and then let's decide some things. Because of course um, that, that's not where it started. I mean, even if you go back to the, you know, the Powers, Blaylock, Gibson, Sterling stuff, it at least had more uh, context to it than that. It, it wasn't as quite blithe and um, no, it unaware. was. I mean, it was rebelling against figures of authority, which yeah. is what the punk appellation is supposed to be about. Yeah. Um, so not every story has to be about an amazing Mac girl, but at the same time, if you're going to have stories about people rebelling against authority. Think about how it's done. Uh, be careful. Be respectful. Um, and look up things like Fossy Jaw. Uh, <laughs> Veronica Sheenis, who I mentioned earlier, has yeah. a story coming out uh, in a steampunk Victorian anthology where she talks about the Match Girls and what Fossy Jaw does to you. And when I read the story, I gave it back and I was like, that's really good. I don't want to read the edits because that was disgusting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's um, horrifying. Well, I mean, so that's, that's what the the um, Nick Mamata story is about, actually, I think, if mm -hmm. I recall correctly. Or something close to it. The Nick Mamata I, I mean, is a lot There's really guy. no shortage of terrible afflictions that happened to anyone who was... Working class. ...in charge of producing what the upper class was playing with. Yes. So. Um, and I think if you want to, if you want to be an amazing airship captain, there is room for that. Have a fantastic time. But think about it first, and think about whose shoulders you are standing on while you have your fun. Well, in a way, it's, it, 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 it's, I suppose the same thing has happened off and on with historical fiction, which isn't nearly as popular as it used to be. But um, when, you were, when you were reading things like Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson, which had a great deal of that kind of realism in it, and eventually gave way to swashbuckling Raphael Sabatini novels and Errol Flynn movies, in which uh, nobody ever really suffered. Nobody even, uh, you know, even if you got sliced by a saber, it was just a flesh wound and you'd be better in the morning. Uh, so and no one ever got infections. No game. <laughs> oh, exactly. in the ah, the glory dies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am interested in something that you were saying, Gary, about steampunk and, and what is thought about it, and that is... Why now? I mean, it does. It, it's often struck me as being the point where we ran away from the science in science fiction because we liked science fiction-y stuff but didn't really want to have to confront science anymore. But it does seem to have grown into something more than that, and it does seem to be something which has evolved beyond the point where it's going to be a passing fad. And it really, for a while, looked like it was going to be. You know, like it was just... Because we've had all kinds of mini-punk appellation kind of a things, obviously. But it seems to be becoming more and more substantial. It's been something you've written a number of times, Genevieve. What draws you back to it? Uh, for me, it's it's exactly what I've been talking about. It's a chance to break down and analyze what exactly we what we talk about when we talk about Victoriana. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of the people who came to Steampunk, however, might have been women who burned out on sort of the boys club that hard SF can turn into. Yeah. Uh, because you find a lot of women writing steampunk, a lot of which is very technically complex and, you know, has wonderful engineering. Um, my my friend and fellow author Kathy came out with Heart of Iron earlier this year, and it had to do 
hugely with the opium wars and international politics and, you know, amazing trains. And the trains were not magical, but she had done so much research into them that you got a feeling of the of the technology itself being magical to the people who were in the story. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a chance to for a lot of people to revisit that sense of wonder with something that feels both fresh and nostalgic. Yeah. Um, especially because so much of steampunk is about the aesthetics of it. I mean, there's a whole interior decorating movement that's happening right now at Restoration Hardware that has no idea that it's steampunk, but it absolutely is. Mm. Um, so been, you see things like... like... What was no, I was just going... Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I thought you were going to say something, Gary. Well, I was, I was going to say that I thought steampunk... Uh, this, is, this has always been my sort of benchmark when... When Time Magazine 20 years ago or something like that did a cover story on cyberpunk, and I thought, okay, that's it. Cyberpunk is on the cover of Time Magazine. It's over. It was about, what, four years ago that the New York Times style section, had all, the entire section was devoted to steampunk. Uh, as I recall, hardly any mention of fiction in it at all. It was, it was all uh, goggles and attitude. Uh, and I thought at that point, okay, <laughs> Once steampunk has made the New York Times style section, isn't doesn't that mean it's over? But it's not. It keeps going. Yes. Well, I think part of the appeal, though. Don't worry, say. Joe, Je- you're going to say something. Oh, I was going to say. Um, I think part of the reason that steampunk uh, has taken hold so much is because it's an aesthetic movement as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, and the idea of it is so much, you know, making it with your own two hands, like fashioning it, fixing it in a way that cyberpunk beyond maybe the cinema classic that is Hackers, you never really quite got a handle on what it would be like to be in that subculture. Um, on the other hand, you can go to Restoration Hardware and pick up a coffee table that looks like an old factory cart. You can what? reupholster a chair yourself and leave all the seams open and fraying, and that is the steampunk look. Um, you can get mahogany appliques for your laptop. Exactly. Um, um, and I think that that's part of a larger sort of, you know, anti-IKEA movement, call it what you will, um, which is one of the reasons I think that steampunk literature uh, has largely been sort of the swashbuckling thing that it is, because part of the aesthetic is like, this is great, like, let's have a fantastic time with it. Um, and I think the reason it's more than just a fad is because people who are never going to sit down with a steampunk novel in their lives have houses that look like the interior of what should have been League of Extraordinary Gentlemen production design mm-hmm. Um, mm. rather than what we actually got, which we will not discuss because <laughs> it's sad enough that it's out there. Oh, it, so- it, it raises an interesting question. I have, I have two separate points, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention this one first because you mentioned the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Why hasn't steampunk worked in the movies? Um, I think it does. I just think it does not work to this to this point anyway, nearly as well in live action as it does in animation. I think mm. if you look at Howl's Moving Castle, um, you have an excellent instance of steampunk. Yep. Um, and there was the amazing animated short that came out a couple of years ago. What was it called? I'm going to cheat and look on my computer right now. That's fine. And there's uh-huh. also a movie called Steam Boy, which came out, which had some amazing, at least steampunk, imagery in it. The Mysterious Explorations of Jasper Morello. Okay. Which Uh had a beautiful steampunk aesthetic. 
Um, but you also have movies like The City of Lost Children, which was an extremely steampunk film, but it wasn't advertised quite as such. Um, it was instead cool. advertised as a very character-centric movie, and so the steampunk trappings sort of faded into the background. Um, I could even which was just as well, because... Have either of you seen a, a check... A Czech animated film from the fifties, I believe, maybe the maybe the sixties, called "The Fabulous World of Jules Verne." No, I it have was, not. It was completely. I mean, it was decades before there was anything like steampunk, but it looks terrific, and it basically uh, animates versions of of, of the uh, you know steel cut engraving illustrations of Verne's novels. And it's uh, I've not looked at it in years, but I uh, I rem my memory of it is that a lot of what we now call steampunk. Well, I'm looking it up now myself. It was 1958. Yep. A Czechoslovak uh, film directed by Carl Zeman. And give me 80 minutes, and I can talk about it. One moment. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this: Have, have the great steampunk steampunk works yet been written? That dead oh, silence. That? Nobody I, likes that I one. Wish, okay. I wish you could see the total deer and head-like ex expression that I am wearing <laughs> right now. It's. <gasps> um, well, if it's going to evolve, shortly they might. I mean, if, even if you allow that something like the Difference Engine, a book which I admire but don't like, uh, is is a work of <laughs> a great work of steampunk. Uh, even if you've got the fondness that I do for Blaylock, even if you've read the latest stuff, what stands out as being the great work, and is it still in front of us, or is this you know is this what we've got? I think the problem is that steampunk has embraced so much of what is traditionally fantasy and science fiction that it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. uh, for some, Perdido Street Station is the ultimate steampunk novel. Wow. Uh, mm. And while there are certainly trappings of it, it's not necessarily mainstream steampunk. But if we're looking at mainstream steampunk, are we looking at The Bookman? Um, are we looking at... Oh, gosh. Uh, Karen Lawachi's... Really good book. Uh, oh, one the, the thingy dogs. The, the, I know the one, the Gaslight Dogs or whatever it was? Or? Gaslight Dogs, yes. Um, because it, because of what it did that was different than what had come before. Yeah. Um, I think that we are, we have yet to see some of the great ones, but I think that we can already tell which ones are going to have the longest lasting impact and which ones are trying to do something so vastly different. I think one of the questions that's confusing about that question is that uh, it, it implies that steampunk is is some kind of a genre, but is it a genre, a mode, an attitude, a theme? Um, if you ask if you ask the same question about uh, I don't know if you ask the same question about sea stories, I doubt if very many people would come up with Moby Dick because Moby Dick's not a great sea story. It's a great whale story, uh, but if if you if you're lumping things into steampunk that include Things as diverse as uh, Perdido Street Station and um, and the Difference Engine, uh, then then what are the what are the barriers? What are the boundaries? For how, how much does this actually include? Is anything more or less? Well, it's Perdido Street Station isn't necessarily even set in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 bem bem well interested that st that Perdido Street Station would be possibly cast as steampunk because it would, never would have occurred to me, frankly. Um, if, I, I would have sat there for a year listing things and not got to it, even though I realized it doesn't. <laughs> even though I realized oh. it's got the, cha the, the the trains and all that sort of stuff, but and I, I guess there is a, a reuse of uh, there's a certain level of technology, but is that it? Is is it the technological level that makes it steampunk, or is it something else? 
And I'm not sure that's something that I can answer. I think it's something that history will have to answer for in terms of what it decides to include when everything has settled. Fair. Um, Yeah, I I, I think that Trudeau Street Station is, I mean, there's a lot of uh, China's work that vaguely reminds me of Mervyn Peak, for example, which is not steampunk at all, but it has the same kind of grotesquery in it. Yeah. There's some of that in Isabel Wills' novels. I'm reading a collection of short stories now by who I think is a terrific Swedish writer who's now writing in English named Karin Tidbeck. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories is apparently some kind of a post-apocalyptic story in which all the characters are living inside this great mother who is a sort of biomechanical creature, obviously humanoid in shape, which has to be maintained by these people. Some work in the stomach, some work in the head, and so forth. Um, it's, it's, it's science fiction enough that it has a steampunk element to it, but I was thinking, is does does she have any idea what steampunk is writing? I mean, I'm sure she does. She she knows the field. But when she was writing this story, would she have had something like that in mind? There's a steampunk ethos to it, but am I putting that on? Am I applying that to it after the fact? Of what is really just a very bizarre and inventive story called Yaganath, by the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. I'd like to, but I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, there's, there were lots of. I've talked to uh, I've, I've talked to Blaylock about this, and he's well aware of the fact that you know that he and uh, and and Tim Powers and a few others have been writing steampunk for years until there was a word. But once there was a word, it's like flypaper; things get attached to the word. And that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think you'll keep writing steampunk, Genevieve? Um. Probably it is it is something that I will keep circling back to because I will read something about the Victorian era where I go oh, that tears it and I sit down at my computer and start to write something um, because I thought I was out of the game entirely and then I started reading up on the Great Exhibition and I was like nope nope this is no this is no good and then a short story happened yeah. so my guess is that will continue to happen to me at intervals. I, I guess the reason that uh, it uh, occurred to me to ask the question is because. Whilst a number of the works that you've written uh, that immediately come to mind are steampunk or steampunk related, you know, you do write a good chunk of things that aren't. And one of the ones that's impressed me the most lately, because I'm in the middle of reading for my best of the year, as I do, is the segment, which is in uh, Datlon yeah. Windling's up- upcoming anthology after, which is a dystopian young adult science fiction story. How did you come to writing it? Um, what an excellent question. I did not want to do um, sort of a cut and dry dystopia where everything is broken because I don't think that that is something that ne- that is necessary to have a dystopia. A dystopia requires only that something be horribly wrong. Um, and I think that especially in the era of Fox News, we are going through a unique time in which the news is constructed for us and that is how people would just as soon have it delivered. Um, so it was, it was a sadly small jump to the idea that you just farm out your news segments to central casting um, for them to give you the news that you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a brilliant so, idea. I think. Well, I mean, it's sad. It works out really brilliantly in this particular in the context of this particular story. And, and unlike in some other thing, other podcasts I do, I don't want to spoil the story at all for people who are yet to encounter it because the book hasn't been published yet. Um, well, that's true. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But it does work out remarkably. Are you tempted to go... I mean, Gary was saying it, you thought it would make a great television series. Uh, you know, kickoff point. Gary? Listen. I was I, I, you, you were dropping out there a little bit. Are we still talking Sorry. about segments? You were talking about... Yes, we are. And I was just saying that you had said that you thought it would well, make... Well, I mean, one right? of the things that... The thing that strikes me as interesting, uh, yep. there's a there's a there's a kind of steampunk which isn't steampunk, which has to do with the media landscape, I guess. And there's a, there's a there's a subset of um, of that in dystopian literature that goes back. Well, it goes back at least to Brave New World, but it certainly had to do with things like Bradbury's The Pedestrian and that sort of thing. One of the questions that I think a good dystopian story asks. I'm not sure I would necessarily say this at novel length. A good dystopian short story makes you ask the question, are we living in this dystopia already? Are are we in yeah. the actual early phases of this? Yeah. Is this, uh, in, in, in the case of, uh, well, I, I don't want to give away too much about segment either, but one of the things that strikes me about an effective dystopia is, is not, that you're, not just that you're terrified by it, but you're terrified by how clearly you recognize it. No, I like that. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, from from The Handmaid's Tale to The Hunger Games, I think that's why a dystopia sort of seizes the public's imagination, because they read it and they have this horrible, nagging feeling where they realize it is barely fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's on its way. Um, well, I, well, I guess that, that's one of those, those questions, though, that you ask about an effective dystopia. I mean, uh, I remember encountering Logan's Run as a young... Well, a young film goer, in fact, and thinking, I enjoyed the film, but I'm not sure how we would get there from here, particularly. And I looked at The Hunger Games, and I have to say that I think it's a terrific piece of fiction, but I look at it as a piece of speculation, and I'm kind of going, I don't see how we get to a sufficiently abstracted version of society where that would happen. And is that one of the challenges in creating a dystopia effectively? that you can't disconnect it too much from the society as it, is, as it could be uh, because you, you just end up with this strange kind of Petri dish instead where you're doing little, little uh, laboratory tests which don't have much Im uh, emotional impact because they're too abstracted from experience and what could happen. I mean, like The Hunger Games doesn't seem plausible in that way to me. My sense I, of that is that... Uh, go okay. ahead, Genevieve. Yeah. No, I'm 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 still puzzling things out. If I had if I had a, a beard, I would be stroking it thoughtfully. <laughs> um, I do see what you're saying, but I also think that the way to make something hit home emotionally for an audience is usually to put a compelling character or two in the middle of it, mm -hmm. um, and then to have the setting that they are in or the dystopia that you are creating reflect just enough of a distortion of what people are looking at for them to say, I see what you mean. Mm. Um, and for me, The Hunger Games was less a direct parallel to reality shows are going to make us mm. kill each other, um, as it is pointing toward the idea of scarcity, of a ruling elite, um, of children from what we, what we are left to gather are largely underprivileged people of color um, and the undereducated. And we are literally setting them on each other while the elite don't care. Mm. And I think if you look at it that way, that definitely is a dystopia that we are living in now. Yeah. Well, that's why I make the distinction. And I, I tend to agree with, with, with you, Jonathan, about dystopias where I can't quite connect the dots. 
Um, but if I'm not mistaken, and this is going to be one of these grand overstatements that, uh, that I'm going to get in trouble for, that the dystopias fall into two camps. They're continuous and discontinuous, by which I'm writing an essay now as I speak. Um, uh, <laughs> a, a discontinuous utopia, think about it. Think about the number of dystopias that are separated from us by some worldwide catastrophe. There's a nuclear war, there's environmental disaster, there's some kind of massive plague in the population that decimates the population. And the world which is recreated is this horrible dystopian world. Well, if you don't have the cataclysm, you don't have that world. And if we don't see that cataclysm as coming, that world is harder to identify with. A continuous dystopia is one which has no clear point of separation between us and them. And those are the ones that, to my mind, can be the most frightening because you don't necessarily, it's not as though, it's instead of thinking, if something bad happens, we'll have a dystopia. And instead, you're thinking, if something drastic doesn't happen, we'll have a dystopia. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay, I'll just write that hey, up. <laughs> write that up and publish it. We'll argue with it when we have a chance to think about it. No? You're going to say something, Gen Genevieve. Uh, I'm no. still puzzling a lot of things over. I think that, I think that, I hate to say dystopia is in the eye of the beholder because that's that's just about as old as it gets. Um, but at the same time, from where one reader is sitting, they might think that could never happen, and from where yeah. another reader is sitting, they might look around and think, "I'm not safe the moment I step out my door." Like, yeah. I'm living in a dystopia. Yes. Um, so I, I sometimes think that looking at a dystopia and saying that can never happen is sort of the same sort of myopia where someone watches the commercials late at night where they beg you to spend 19 cents a day to feed a child, mm -hmm. you know, in X country. Uh, and people go, oh, gosh, really? Yeah. Um, for, for some people, we don't need fiction to have a dystopia in which everything is a life or death situation. Certainly not. Um. So to look at the Hunger Games and think without a horrible cataclysm, this couldn't happen in a literal sense. Absolutely. Yeah. But in a larger sense, um, again, a ruling class that that does not care about the underlings that support it with everything that it needs to survive uh, is in a larger sense, something that is playing out in front of us right now. And is that um, historical precedent as well? Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, to, to, to go back, uh, we're giving we're not giving away too much of the plot, but to go back to segment, one of the things that I find chilling about that is that I can't find anything that's not sort of, the gears aren't meshing right now. Uh, everything in that story is, in a sense, true. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's simply um, an extrapolated truth. And, then, and that's what science fiction historically does. It extrapolates from you know, current conditions. Um, that strikes me as being, it, it, and you're absolutely right, when you take something like, let's say, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, well, that's obviously a horrible, terrifying situation. But you pretty much have to blast the earth to cinders in order to get there. Uh, and unless, so, so what you basically end up worrying about in that novel is, gee, I hope the earth doesn't get blasted to cinders so I don't <laughs> have to live like that. <laughs> yes, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there are students, and I, um, I, I've, some of my students have, have pointed this out to me, so it's not my own idea, uh, when I'd be teaching some kind of a dystopian novel in the same context that I'd be teaching something like, say, Octavia Butler's Kindred. And several students pointed out, you know, if that weren't real, we'd think that's a horrible dystopia that she's describing in 1818 in Maryland. Mm. 
So what keeps us running back to dystopias, and why why do our young adults seeming to be attracted to it right now? Uh, it, it does seem to be something that's come around again. I mean, it always comes around, but it does seem to come back back again uh, with the Hunger Games and things like it. Is it just happenstance that that book hit a nerve, and so now everybody's trying to copy it, or is it something that you feel that we feel people are genuinely more interested in right now? Hmm. Um. I think that it is a natural successor in some ways to the paranormal. We have gone through ghosts and angels and vampires and werewolves and those that like them still have them, but those Mm -hmm. that are looking for something that is slightly more science fiction um, without necessarily the same sort of trappings are going to seek out things like dystopias. But I also think that the reason that they are so big right now is because... I'm gonna I'm gonna sound 80 years old, and that's just something I'm gonna have to be okay with. Um, this is an era of teenagers that grew up with a much more global mindset. Um, we're looking at worldwide high-speed internet and all that all that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. they are both much more uh, much more able to be politically aware if they choose, mm-hmm. and. Maybe the more they look at, the more hopeless it feels. And so you have the dystopia that is both the confirmation that everything is wrong and the hope that if you fight it hard enough, you can somehow come out on the other side all right. Yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. Well, I wonder if that has to do with... And Jonathan and I were talking about this a little bit um, last week or week before last. And one of the things, one of the odd things which I'd noticed, and I'm sure it has nothing to do except algorithms and... Um, in Amazon was that uh, when I was I, I, do, I, I did this volume of 1950s science fiction stories, uh, two volumes, for the Library of America. And at the bottom of the Amazon page, it says people who bought this book uh, from the Library of America also bought this book. And the other book was the Little House on the Prairie series by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And at first I thought this just bizarre. I mean, this is one of those algorithms that you know. Uh, I mean, two years ago when I was trying to get Elizabeth Hand's novel. Um, uh, I think it was Available Dark, or the one before that, Generation Loss. It told me that people who bought Generation Loss also bought Thomas the Tank Engine, so what do they know? Um, but still, there's the frontier aspect to it. There's the a- aspect, uh, and Jonathan, this is your point more than mine, mm-hmm. that in the Hunger Games or in the Little House on the Prairie, you have a world in which young people can take action, can have effective action, can actually do heroic things, can have adventures, and most of them are not living in a world like that. And I think that might be appealing, uh, whether it's a frontier narrative, which could be viewed as dystopian, or whether it's a future narrative, which... I've got a much more pragmatic explanation for it now, Gary. I thought I'd noticed this. Uh, You know what it is? What? Library of America also published a collection of Little House on the Prairie books. Oh, yes. Yes, that was was their... So uh, the the, the sales connection was they were buying the new Little Library of America books, maybe. Wait, are you saying that we are living in a dystopia where people are constantly trying to market things to us for their own gain? Because that's <laughs> chilling. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I, think, I think I am. I think we are. <laughs> I mean, the very nice things they're trying to market, though. I mean, very attractive additions of the Little House on the Prairie books. But I think that might be the real reason, Gary, not any deeper sort of interpretation of society as we're living in it at the moment, sadly. It's a good metaphor, and I'm sticking with it. Good man. 
you know, if you want to be part of this community, Gary, you have to be able to look facts right in the eye, stare them down, and move on, ignoring them completely. Wally. <laughs> and scene. And end scene. Well, actually, okay, end scene. There's one thing we should touch on because we are getting towards the end of our time. And I I should tell you, Genevieve, well, to, to, to put this in context, I every now and again have a, do rant on this podcast. And I try not to, but I do. And last weekend I ranted. And I ranted because I was feeling impatient because the mm-hmm. World Fantasy Ballot had not been released. And mm-hmm. I am like a little kid. If I don't get my, uh, you know, my, my, my treat on time, I get upset. And I did, in fact, threaten uh, that if they didn't release the Royal Fantasy Ballot, Gary and I would either have to start our own award, and we did begin to sc- scope out what our award would be. We did we, okay. con- we contemplated the inevitable award award, which which you know sort of is going to happen sooner or later. The, you know, the award for the best conducted set of awards. Uh, I like it. I, I, yeah, just some merit. We then thought it, it might actually be simpler simply to put out our own World Fantasy Awards ballot. That what what we would do is we would fill in all 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 the gaps, put it out in the world, and people could judge. They could compare our high quality, well considered, put together off off the back of a you know a, a, a you know, chip packet kind of World Fantasy Wars ballot, or the one that came out from them. Now, obviously, this sent shivers through the community, Genevieve, as you could imagine, and so that you know the World Fantasy Committee immediately responded by preemptively releasing. Uh, their ballot. Now, admittedly, I'm not sure if it's the the final one, and they may suddenly change their minds because they've had more time to think about it. But the mm-hmm. World Fantasy ballot is upon us now, and it seems that since I ran at such length, we should at least comment on it briefly before we go. By all means, I would first like to lodge my disappointment that while creating a new award, there was no awesomely named new award. It was the 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 award award or the alternate world fantasy. Neither one of those is exciting. I am sad. Well, then, I think plainly what we need to do is we need to engage you in the future to help us come up with a suitable name for an award so that we can put the award in onto the name. And, and in the meantime, we'll simply call it the awesomely named award. I, I accept that. As an interim movement, I think that's a perfectly <laughs> solid name for an award. <sighs> um, let's talk about the World Fantasy Award. Well, well, let, let's start with that. I mean, for, first of all, I think it's true to say that we're all World Fantasy Award nominees at some stage ourselves. I think that's true. Uh, that is, yes, that yes. is true. Yes, and I think it's true to say that we are friends with many World Fantasy Award nominees and winners. And so there is, are those caveats of we know some of these people or have worked with these people or whatever else. But I looked at them. So. <laughs> I looked it's at them. Otherwise. I thought it was a, re- a very solid ballot. Not n- not a surprising ballot, but a very solid one. How about you guys? Uh, I agree. I remember I remember looking through it and seeing several things that made me smile, uh, seeing things that I know had made other ballots. Um, overall, I think it's a really strong a really strong ballot. Very yeah. I solid is the word. Yeah, I mean certainly uh, I know what you mean. I looked down and, I, and there's. A smattering of my favorite work there from the, from last year, and there's also a smattering of the things that I would have expected, and one or two things that are sufficiently left field to me to be happy to see them show up so that I will have to go off and find out about them. I mean, I, I had not looked at Christopher Buhlman's novel, These, Those Across the River. So mm-hmm. that so that was sort of new to me and something that I had never heard. Yeah, that was brand new to me. Yeah. 
Whereas the others, I mean, Gary was saying um, before we started recording that one of the games to play is, you know, what were the popular picks? Because obviously the World Fantasy Ballot's made up of two popular uh, vote uh, nominees and then three chosen by the jury, usually. And in this case, you know, it's like the best novel category. One would assume that Stephen King's 112263 and George R.R. R. Martin's A Dance with Dragons were the popular vote. Mm-hmm. That said, I mean, I was very surprised but pleased to see Osama by Lavi Tidhar make the ballot mm-hmm. and delighted because it's just my personal prejudice to see one of my favorite books of the year among others by Joe Walton make the ballot and you know I, I thought it, it I mean I, I would have to go back and see what I thought was missing but it, it seemed like a, a, a good strong ballot a novel ballot of the ones I've read I wouldn't argue the thing that surprised me about it only for a moment is that the World Fantasy Awards are the last big awards of the year. They, they come toward the end of the year. And I, I'd almost forgotten for a moment that, yeah, I mean, among others, which has been on other ballots, obviously, is is still a, a book from last year. It seems to me now, because I read it two years ago or something. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, but but I'm, I'm very glad to see that's there. I'm The fact that Osama is there is a way of signaling me that the jury, which I was just on a couple of years ago, Really did really did a lot of reading because that's not a book that got a lot of attention. It was not uh, you know published in a major edition by a major commercial press in the United States, and uh, somebody had to find that and, and realize that there was something rather uh, special and unusual going on in it. So I'm I'm especially pleased with that one. Yeah. Um, the of the um, novella categories, I think uh, again I was just on the jury for um, the Shirley Jackson Awards, and I think that three or four of those uh, overlapped with the, the nominees for the Shirley Jackson Awards as yeah. well. Yeah. Because um, mm-hmm. I think what Near Zenor, uh, Rose Street Attractors, and maybe Silently and Very Fast overlapped? I think, I, I think a small price to pay for Birdsong may also have overlapped. I, I don't know if Silent. I don't remember, actually. That's an interesting one to me to see that make the World Fantasy Ballot, because K.J. Parker has been receiving more acclaim... Um, over the last few years, but really hasn't hit award ballots much until now. So it's interesting to see uh, Parker begin to get that kind of recognition. Uh, I think that's actually one of the advantages of the World Fantasy Award, the fact that it's partially popular and partially juried. Mm. The the popular ones tend to give you a snapshot of what was big during the year, but then the jury allows for things like Osama uh, and people like K.J. Parker um, mm. to get exposed that they, they otherwise might not have. Mm. So one of the things I like to do with the World Fantasy Ballot uh, and what I did this year is pick several things that I hadn't heard or read yet uh, and put them on my list of things to do. Yeah. Do we want to take a guess as to what the popular vote was or in any of the other categories? I would bet that in novella that it was uh, Cat, uh, Catherine, Catherine Valenti silently and very fast, and probably um, a small price to pay for Birdsong with the popular novellas would be my guess. And uh, my, okay. And my guess for short story would be that uh, Karen Fowler for younger women, women, and probably Tim Powers for a journey of only two paces would be the popular votes. Even though I really love the E. Lily U story, their cartographer wasps and the Anarchist bees, and Paper Menagerie. In fact, I think it's a very strong short story ballot. I agree. <laughs> uh, I do wonder if, if the jury have tipped their hand about the best anthology choice, because I noticed they've got a number of stories from a book of horrors in the short fiction categories, 
And mm. I don't know if that perhaps indicates their feeling about the ultimate winner for best anthology as well. Huh. Interesting I question. Well, it it kind of makes a sort of sense. I mean, if a story make, or if a book if an anthology makes the, the 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 final ballot, but none of the stories make the final short story ballot, you kind of think, well, really. But when a, if one book has a bunch of stories on the short fiction ballots, it kind of it does. I mean, I guess ultimately you get the thing where they go, well, we don't have to give it to them now because you know, uh, some stories from the book have got up. Oh. But I think more likely, I think, is the, th the idea that, yeah, it, it, it could be the, the, the quiet favourite. Though, um, I did like the, the Lamb's Head and the uh, book, and also Blood and Other Cravings, so. And The Weird, actually, I think The Weird is the book's going to win that. It's this huge, amazing achievement. I can't read it, because it's like, one point type and three quarters of a million words, but <laughs> it is, it is, it's like, have you seen it? The physical book? It's, it's pretty... I have it's printed split column and it's tiny type. I think they should th probably the best way to read it is as an ebook for that reason, uh, and it's three quarters of a million words. Wow. And that's that's just a lot. Um, yeah, there were debates over whether it was actually the largest anthology of short fiction ever. Yeah, it wow. would be up there. Wow. It would be up there. Now, for collection, two of my favorite books of the year are on the list. So I'm really happy with with Maureen McHugh's After the Apocalypse and Kate yes. Kiernan's Two Worlds and In Between. I'm also delighted to see Lisa Hannett, an, uh, an Australian writer, get on there with Bluegrass Symphony with a book from Ticonderoga Press. So my hat's off to them. And another one that made me very delighted was in artist to see Kathleen Jennings, who's also uh, a young Austra Australian uh, artist who I met for the first time in Melbourne at the, the National Science Fiction Convention here and who is, is just terrific and does some lovely work. But, yes, a solid ballot. Anything else anybody wants to comment on or should we just... Well, I'm glad to see the Caitlin Kernan thing. One of the things that does affect different awards, and I've only begun to learn this since I started judging them, is that different awards have different rules. And there were there was a specific rule uh, involved with the Shirley Jackson Awards that eliminated uh, Caitlin Kernan's collection because it's essentially a retrospective. It's a mm. collection of stories which have been previously collected in earlier Caitlin Kernan collections. Uh, to mm. me, it's the most important books of the year uh, because it's 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 a career defining book in a sense. You can actually watch her progress, and she included stories that even she is not comfortable with from her early career. But you can really watch the arc of a writer getting better and better and better in that book. And as we've said before, um, and I think we said it to Caitlin when she was with us, we need volume two. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> Actually, I should ask. Are we finished with the world fantasy ballot? I'm not trying to rush us off, but I've got a question, and then and my question. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. No, 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 I, no, I, no please. No, 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 please. Um, uh, a quick note. I like that the special award professional and the special award non-professional uh, have such a wide range of things. Like, there are books, there are blogs, there are magazines. Uh -huh. I, um, Joe Fletcher Books is on there. Yeah. I like that, that the World Fantasy Ballot acknowledges such a range of people who contribute to the community. I agree. I've always had a very special you know warm feeling about the awards for that sort of reason you know i realize they are somewhat you know sort of catch-alls i mean how do you compare editing a imprint for a major publisher with compiling the steampunk bible or comply you know, compare a blog to running tartarus press but i guess the point is that you're not comparing them you're looking them in terms of the degree of excellence within their own context and then and and then looking at that and recognizing that i think that's a great thing for the community. Oh, and yeah, it, it looks like a mismatch on the one hand, but on the other hand, that's not what the point is. The point is to recognize that there are a lot of people who do important 
and significant and worthwhile things in the community yeah. that uh, that are other than writing books. And we should mention our our, our listener and friend Charles Tan for yes, yes. Uh, for being nominated in special Indeed. award nominational. Oh, his, his second his second <laughs> such nomination, I think. Oh really? Yes, yes, because he was he was not he was up last year in the same category. The other thing which is impressive, just generally about the ballot, and you mentioned the number of Australian people that were on it, is it's a very international ballot uh, in many ways. Well, it's very English-speaking uh, ballot. You know what I mean? It's like it's very much a, it's the U.S., it's the U.K., it's Australia, and I think one mm. person who's not. But at least that's better than being being just one country. It's true, but it's 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 also part of the history, and it's not simply the World Fantasy Awards. It's the other awards. I think I've. Uh, the trivia question, which I've asked on here before, is what's what non-English language works were ever nominated for best novel in the World Fantasy Awards? Don't know. One was Perfume by Patrick Suskind, mm-hmm. and the other, wow. I, I believe, was Kafka on the Shore by Murakami. Wasn't Italo Calvino nominated? Um, he might have been nominated for Life Achievement. I'm not sure there was a specific work that was nominated. I have to look that up. Yeah, I've got a feeling he was. Anyway, that's interesting. A good okay. My, my, my other question, which actually popped into my mind, is, Genevieve, you are writing fairly prolifically these days. When are we going to see a collection? Oh, sorry, that was my water glass. Um, what an excellent question. <laughs> uh, hypothetically, I am working on compiling something. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully I have I have a couple of things that will actually be making their way out from my computer into the world later this year, and I think that that is all I can say about that right now. Fair enough. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I can say that you know, you're going to have, what, about half a dozen stories out this year? Isn't that about right? Um, I think so. Let Cause, me... Because there's, what, A Game of Mars, The Gravedigger of Constant Spring, The Last Run of the Coppelia, The Segment, mm-hmm. Armless Maidens of the American West, which only just came out, and then a couple more stories coming out elsewhere. Uh, that is correct. I think I have two or three more coming out before the end of the year, possibly more. <laughs> We shall look I don't forward. leave my house a lot, is how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, sh- we shall look forward to them all. And, of course, everybody, we will put links to your your website when we put the podcast up so people can keep track of what's going along. But I have to say that okay. the stories that have come out this year have been terrific. And I'm very, very grateful that you could, had, could make the time to come on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Okay. Great. Thank you. And on that happy note, I will talk to you uh, next week, Mr. Wolf, uh, as always. And maybe we'll see you at in Toronto, Genevieve, with a little bit of good luck. You will. I will see you there. I look forward to it. Okay. Excellent. All right. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.